So it should come as no surprise to us that people living in the first century, which is our context, people living in the first century heavily relied upon the testimony of others to establish facts. In the absence of technologies such as cameras, video recorders, cell phones, etc., people needed a witness. People needed somebody else to confirm events that had happened. The importance then of testimonies in that era was invaluable as it served as a mechanism for establishing truth claims. Genuine claims could be separated from falsehood and obscurity could be clarified by somebody else who is testifying or bearing testimony about an event that happened. As someone who grew up with three siblings, I can tell you that the testimonies of others counted a whole lot. When a parent asks you who broke this or who did that, there was nothing more deflating than hearing the testimony of your sellout siblings look at you and say that it was you. But consider this, the stakes can be far greater than just some lashes you get from your parent. Consider this, instead of Jonathan getting licks, think about the relevance of a testimony for someone who's on trial for murder. Or how about the expert testimony concerning a potential usurping or coup d'etat that is about to happen in a country? Or how about this one? The testimony born concerning the glory of God. I think we can see in varying degrees the importance of testimonies from these short examples that I've given. And we can also see the ultimate weight of a testimony that bears witness to the glory of God. And it is this ultimate matter that John zeroes in on on this section of the text. And I hope after going through it, we can better appreciate that the testimony of God bears much weight. There's no comparable matter of significance. There's nothing of greater import. There's no information that you can receive that is of greater value than the testimony that John is speaking about in this passage. John helps us in this section by arguing that the testimony of the apostles concerning Jesus should be believed. Our big idea then is pretty simple. Believe the apostolic testimony concerning Jesus. That's our big idea. And we will follow John's reasoning by considering three arguments that he raises or presents. The first is that God's testimony is greater than the testimony of men. That's the first argument he presents for why you should believe the testimony of the the apostles. The second is that the character of God demands that you believe the testimony of concerning the Son. And the third is that belief in this testimony is a matter of life and death. So those are the three arguments that John uses to basically help us to appreciate why we ought to believe the testimony that the apostles have borne concerning the Son of God. So before we begin, though, let's get two things out of the way to provide some necessary context. The first is, relates to this. In verse 9, we have 
that the testimony of God is greater. And then we have, this is the testimony of God. In, uh, in verse 9, we have that. And what I, what I want to clarify immediately before we, we go any further is the testimony of God that John is referring to there isn't like the voice that Peter, John, and James heard on the mountain. It, he isn't speaking about the audible voice of God. It's most likely that he's speaking about the apostles' actual message concerning Jesus. As we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes and says in that book that his words are the words of Christ. So just like Paul and all the apostles, they were commissioned to speak the very words of God. And so we can consider their words to be God's words. So that's the sense, I think, that John actually means here when, we, when he says the testimony of God. He's not referring to some audible voice that God has spoken on a mountain. He's referring to the apostles' teaching about Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, what is the testimony referred to in these verses? And I'm just doing this so that when we're going through the sermon, that you know what I'm referring to, because I'm going to just say testimony all the time. And I don't want you to be misguided or to not have a clear idea of what that testimony is. In verse 11, John says that this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So that's the testimony that is being referred to. When I say the testimony of God or when I refer to the testimony, that's what I mean. I'm using John's own understanding of what the testimony is. We'll unpack that further, but for now, just know that that's what I mean, just to clarify. So with that context in mind, let's look at our first point. Remember our first point was God's testimony is greater than man's testimony. As we mentioned last week, we know that John is addressing the false claims of the Docetists who had left this community of believers. And just as he points out that Jesus doesn't come by water only, but by water and the blood, just as he raises that point to dismiss the claims of the Docetists, he brings up an argument from the lesser to the greater to show that it's only reasonable to believe in the testimony of God over men. In verse 9 we read, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. But having read that, what exactly is John contrasting here? Or put more simply, what is the testimony of men and why is it less than the testimony of God? Now, several suggestions could be offered, but it makes most sense to interpret verse 9 to be a general comparison of the general trust trustworthiness of men versus the general trustworthiness of God. John is juxtaposing the greater credibility of God as the testifier in comparison to that of men. To give an illustration that maybe gets to the point, imagine there was an accident which occurred and it involved an elderly man who had early onset dementia and another person. Eventually the day comes when they have to go to court and plead their case and the elderly man is accused of making the accident or he's accused of causing the accident he's accused of causing it 
But in that moment, he provides a lucid and compelling case to the jury and eventually is found to be not guilty. Say that same jury had another accident case later in that day. But this time, the one accused has a witness who vouches for him that he didn't commit the crime. And this witness saw the accident occur from a bird's eye view. He wasn't even in the accident. He saw the accident occur from a bird's eye view in a helicopter as he was filming. And it becomes known during the cross-examination that this witness has perfect recall. Wouldn't it be obvious that if the jury was willing to believe the old guy, that they should believe the young guy who has perfect recall? That's kind of the rhetoric that John is using here to argue for the superior trustworthiness of God's witness. Men are prone to lies. They're prone to ignorance. They're prone to forgetfulness. They're prone to being illogical. And you could go on with several other reasons why a man's testimony could be discredited. A man's testimony is usually only as good as his character, his mental faculties, and the amount of information that's available to him. John is saying that if you're willing to believe someone with so many limitations, how much more ought you to believe the one who made that man? How much more ought you to believe the one whose truthfulness is literally demonstrated every single day since the day of creation? God has promised since the day of creation in Genesis 8 that harvest time, summer, day and night will not cease. That's why we sang great is thy faithfulness. God's truthfulness has not ceased since the days of creation. Why then would you believe someone who has so many limitations, i.e. a man, instead of believing the testimony of God? Remember that within the context, John was advocating for the truthfulness of God's words spoken through the apostles. If you're willing to believe when a man tells you over the phone what your balance on your bank account is, why shouldn't you believe the apostles whose words were verified through miraculous acts, whose words were verified through Jesus actually saying, like, I'm commissioning you, why would you not believe the apostles? That would be like saying, yeah, I can believe the old guy with early onset dementia, but I can't believe the young guy who has perfect recall and who saw the thing from a helicopter with a bird's eye view. That is absurd. And that's exactly John's point. God's testimony is greater than the testimony of men. That's the idea. But this isn't some sort of roadmap for how you get your unconverted friends to believe and trust the words of the Lord. In fact, it's quite the opposite. If you've received the testimony of men and failed to receive the testimony of God, John is saying it's not because you can't put the dots together. It's obvious. The problem that exists isn't a problem of reasoning. It's a problem of morality. It's a moral problem. Just pause to think about that for a minute. John is making the claim that God is more trustworthy and his testimony of greater weight or value than the testimony of men. And so to readily receive the testimony of less credible sources over and against one that is inherently more credible, 
points to a deficiency in you and not the person who's given the testimony. Anytime the words of men are received with greater readiness or esteemed with higher value or considered more believable, it isn't because God's word concerning eternal life is unclear. It isn't because God leaves out key information and you're left in an information vacuum to grope around in the dark. That isn't the case at all. The reason is easier to believe someone on CNN than the Bible is because men's hearts are bent towards wickedness. As the scripture says, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That is the problem. It's a moral problem. As Pastor John once mentioned, we are like cockroaches who scurry away quickly at the sight of light because we know it exposes our wickedness. That's the effect God's testimony concerning his son has on the heart of the unregenerate. Unless the spirit works to regenerate, men will quickly run back to the shade to conceal their wicked deeds. In the case of the Docetists, it's possible that the cover of shade was their doctrine that the body wasn't really important because, you know, Jesus wasn't here bodily, so, you know, what I do in the body isn't important. Only the spirit is important. They de-emphasize the body and so trivialize sin. But this reality isn't unique to them. The Pharisees hid behind the law to crucify Jesus. The agnostic hides behind the veneer of ignorance to reject Jesus. The point is that whenever we believe the testimony of men over and above the testimony of God, it isn't an intellectual decision we've made. It's a moral one. And usually it's done hiding under the shade of some pretense that protects us from moral scrutiny. I'd ask you, unbeliever, is that you? Whose testimony have you embraced? Is it the testimony of the Lord or is it the testimony of men? I'd urge you as we go through this sermon for you to consider prayerfully, carefully, what the testimony of, the God, of God is as, as well as what, whether you believe it or not. But friends, I say all the time that the scripture isn't written for people on the outside. John writes this letter to believers for their admonition and instruction. It serves as a helpful reminder to us all. We can ask a similar question. Have we embraced the testimony of men as being above or equal to the testimony of God? Do we flee to Jordan Peterson when we want instruction about life? Like that's a, that's a serious problem in, in several churches now, the Jordan Peterson effect. Do we flee to him when we want instructions about life? Do we receive that testimony with greater value? Do we place more import on it than the testimony of God? Yes, that's somewhat outside of the scope here because the testimony of God relates to Jesus Christ specifically. But as I said, John is really contrasting the credibility of one of the testifier, God, versus the, the other testifier, man. And so... Who are you believing? Who do you run to when you want clear and truthful information? Sometimes we functionally act like unbelievers. 
God's testimony concerning Jesus isn't enough for us, or perhaps we waver in God, or perhaps we waver in thinking about God's ability or willingness to bring us all the way home. Whatever the reason is, I urge you too, dear saints, to, to consider what your esteem is for the testimony of God, particularly in relation to the testimony of men. So that's the first point. The testimony of God is greater than the testimony of man. But the second reason the Apostle John presents to us why we should believe the testimony of God is because the character of God is on the line. As we read in verse 10, if you don't believe that God has taken the form of flesh and has come by water and the blood to grant eternal life, then you have effectively called God a liar. Calling God a liar is literally the oldest trick in the book. In Genesis 3, we see Satan taking the form of a snake and tempting Eve by asking, did God actually say? But more than that, he says flatly, God knows that you will be like him if you eat of the tree. It's literally satanic to not believe the gospel as it is the father of lies who seeks to subvert and obscure the simple message of the gospel. And friends, in this day, such subtle lies lies subvert many. I said this once before, but the devil doesn't come to you with a pitchfork prodding you to believe lies. He doesn't give you a joke and you're behind and says, look, Look at this great, great truth I have here. Believe that 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 is an extremely simplistic way and I would say untruthful way of how the devil presents himself. Satan appears like a gentleman wishing to give you the Jesus that you want. If you feel that you have been oppressed as a black man, Satan gives you the Jesus whose primary mission is to rescue the oppressed. If you feel that you are in need of healing, believe in the Jesus who came so that you have your best life now. If you feel that you, or rather, if you want to just live a life of sin, but you want to have Jesus as well, no problem. Satan has a Jesus for that too. Believe in the Jesus who comes as Savior, but not as your Lord. The point, friends, I could multiply way more examples, but I I think you get the point. Believing in these other testimonies of Jesus means you have not believed the, the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God's testimony concerning his son is that he has come to bring eternal life. That is the primary mission and the primary work of Jesus Christ, to Think of Jesus in other terms, to esteem him, to look for him, to do something else for you, like you rub a a genie bottle or something, is believing a testimony of man, perhaps yourself or of somebody else. But the point is that if you believe those things, if you believe in a testimony other than what God has given, you have not believed the testimony of the inspired apostles. You have gone apart from that. You've turned aside and believed a lie. So that's just a warning about the approach of Satan. But that aside, our main point is that not believing the gospel message is an affront to the glory of God. 
And believing what God has testified concerning his son upholds and esteems his glory. Who you are willing to and who you are willing to listen to and to believe says a lot about the person. Implicitly, you know that you don't believe people who are known to be liars. You don't believe tricksters, as the Bajans would say. You don't believe people who are accustomed to forgetting pertinent details about things. You believe people who demonstrate a tenacious fidelity to the truth. And so, friends, maintaining a gospel confession isn't, a mere, isn't simply a matter of your own eternal destiny, which we'll get to shortly. But it's a matter of what we affirm about who God is. Is God truthful? Is God faithful in what he says? Or is he not? The attribute of God's faithfulness, his truthfulness, is upheld and prized when you hold fast to the gospel. So that lunchtime conversation that you may have isn't merely about where, where your co-worker will spend the rest of his days. It's actually about whether God is true and you are a liar. It's actually about whether God is faithful and other people are unfaithful. That's what it comes down to. Can the one who sustains the universe be trusted or not? Can he who is unchanging make a mistake or not? Just as John argues for God's truthfulness, oh how I would also argue that you would be zealous for maintaining God's truthfulness by your holding fast to the testimony of God. And remember, that testimony is that God has sent his son to bring eternal life. Again, we'll unpack that later. That's a very basic application we can take from this, this text. Be committed to exposing, be committed to displaying the glory of God by your commitment to the gospel. Whether it is at lunchtime with a worker, whether it's correcting somebody who has applied or thought about the gospel incorrectly, be committed to gospel faithfulness. You don't have to be a minister in Africa. Just hold fast to the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So that's the second point. And just to summarize where we are, the apostle is agitating for the testimony of God concerning his son. He wants the recipients of this letter to be equipped and confident that the testimony they receive they can rely on and to further their assurance in this message. He explains that God is more faithful and a more truthful testifier than men. God's witness is more credible than man's witness. In the same way that you ought to believe a witness was perfect recall over and against someone who has early onset dementia, God's witness, God's testimony is more truthful than the testimony of men. Secondly, we ought to believe God's testimony because we can't separate what God says from who he is. Those who disbelieve what God has said concerning his son tacitly or implicitly call God a liar and so dishonor him. And the third reason John gives, which we will get to now, is that believing in God's testimony is a matter of life and death. There are few things, if any, which are more troubling than the thought of death. For any of you who had a close family member who has died and has attended their funeral, 
There's something that makes your body ache when you think about the fact that you will probably never see this person again. But as Christian, this feeling is more gut-wrenching when we think about the fact, because we think of all of life within a Christian worldview, that feeling is more compounded when you think about the fact that this person died and was not saved. This person died in their sins. Or maybe you just don't know whether they were saved. The reason it is gut-wrenching is because you know that they have made an irreversible choice at the fork in the road. And you can't follow along that path. John reminds us that whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not, does not have life. Death is at work physically in everyone born in Adam. But everyone born and in the covenant of works will face more than death itself. Everyone born in Adam and who remain in the covenant of works through Adam will also taste of the second death. The only way of escape is found in the life that Jesus offers. Christ has come to take away the sin that causes both physical death and the second death, which is eternal separation and torment in hell forever. He has borne on his body both by dying and receiving the punishment for our sins. But we need more than simply for our sins to be taken away. No one can ascend to God's holy hill unless he has clean hands. Getting simply to no sins doesn't get you up the mountain. You need perfect righteousness. And that's what Jesus offers at the cross. At the cross, those who trust in Jesus experience a great exchange. Not simply a great reset, a great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. But as John mentions in verse 13, only those who believe have eternal life. It's through belief in that testimony that we are able to have the Son. Only those who believe have the Son. And this isn't mere superficial belief. John writes earlier in verse 10 that you have to have this testimony in yourself. In verse 10, it reads that whoever does not believe has made God, oh sorry, I wrote read too far down. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The NIV doesn't do a good job of rendering this text because it says whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. But I don't think that's the idea that John is getting at and the more literal translations all say the same thing. They all, the KJV, the ESV, the NASV all render the text like this. It is rendered, whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. The text, the, the likely reason that John is thinking of when he renders this word, having the testimony in himself, is that faith is something that is supposed to permeate the very life of the believer. It is something that is to be imbibed and to become part of who you are. John is assuming that those who believe are eating and drinking the flesh of the Son of God. 
they're assimilating this testimony and not merely leaving it on the surface, like how you would learn trigonometry or something in second form. He's assuming that it goes deep down and becomes a part of you. It's in this fashion that men of old spoke of Spurgeon and him bleeding Bible. The scripture forms such an integral part of, li- of his life. You may have mistakenly thought that he was powered by Bible verses or something. That's the type of faith that John is speaking about here. It's the type of faith that we ought to have. We can't merely present Jesus as someone who is to be acknowledged or simply someone to be accepted, as the NIV renders it. But we ought to be considering having this testimony in ourselves, something that shapes, something that becomes an integral part of who we are. But circling back to our main point, do you think that the testimony God has brought to you is a matter of life and death? If so, friends, be earnest in, in your pursuit of sharing this testimony with others. It is only by believing this testimony that people will have life in the sun. Also, as you share with others, avoid the error of thinking that the testimony is about you. We've kind of mischaracterized what a testimony is in the 21st century because I guess equivocation rules the land and testimony, Christian, these type of words can take on different meanings. But a testimony is something that you're bearing about someone else. The apostles bore testimony about what God had done in Christ Jesus. When you bear testimony, be careful to, make, to not make the thing about you. It's not an autobiography. When you share your testimony, it's about what has God done for a lost sinner such as yourself in and through Christ Jesus. It's all about Christ. The testimony only serves to show and to highlight the great work that God has done on your behalf. Withholding this gospel is a matter of life and death. It's only through preaching, teaching, sharing Christ that men have life. Unbeliever, John has written this short section which should provide affirmation that if you run and flee to Christ, he will not only accept you, but that you will have eternal life through him. There are few Christians I know who believe the gospel the first time that they heard it. God is willing to have you as long as you come to him through faith in his testimony. There's no merit that you have to bring before God. All he requires of us is this, to approach us empty-handed, knowing that we could do naught to save ourselves, knowing that we need an atonement for our sins and laying all of our trust in Christ to do that work. It is a matter of life and death. And so don't delay as though you could put it off like you do your laundry. Come to God by faith in this testimony. He has given us a testimony concerning his son and he will accept you. So come and receive the life that he offers.